This is Dr. Canadiana, a podcast about Canadian theatre history. I'm your host, Ashley Williamson. Episode 6, Mandates and Playwrights, with Nina Lee Aquino. Listener note, last episode was intended as a two-parter. However, the quality of the recording of my conversation with Revy Jane from Why Not Theatre was not great, which was too bad. He was honest, insightful, and charming. I did learn from my mistake and was able to make a better recording when I talked with Nina Lee Aquino, Factory Theatre's current artistic director. That interview will make up the majority of this episode. We talk about mandates, play developments, theatre audiences, and the Canadian canon. On the last episode, I discussed the role of mandates in the development of Canadian theatre companies, particularly Toronto Alternative Theatre founded in the 1970s. I touched on the dramaturgical model at Tarragon, the feminist pivot made by Nightwood Theatre, and Factory Theatre's commitment to staging new Canadian works. I also discussed the modernization that some of these companies had made to their mandates, as well as the founding and development of companies who have expanded the idea of what Canadian means, like Obsidian, Fujian, and Cahoots. The last episode also made it clear that the development of these theatre companies is tightly entwined with the playwrights and plays we have come to see as canonical. Playwriting is this week's central topic, and I will let my conversation with Nina illuminate it. Nina Lee Aquino has been the Artistic Director of Factories Theatre since 2010. She is also a playwright, actor, and author. This interview was recorded on the 14th of October, 2020. There could be a cat at any time. Yeah, no problem. I have a dog myself, and so sometimes he barks. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. We'll just deal with. We'll just everything. deal with it. Yeah. yeah. So what I w- what I've been speaking to my students, and what I wanted to talk to you about, was we were talking about the the mandates that seem to structure and codify the way that we do theater in, in Canada. And I used mandates in Toronto theaters as examples. Um, obviously. Pass Mariah Factory and Tarragon, because you know, kind of have a, have mandates, and then some of them have stuck, and some of them have shifted. And mm-hmm. I wondered if you could speak to that, because I know that the man you inherited a mandate, and then you kind of shifted it. And I think did I did I really shift it? Well, you made it. You you did what you could. Yes, I I think that. Um with mandates i mean it's a legal thing too right like you know you don't when you incorporate whether you're not for profit um one of the first things that you are asked is like what is this business for what what is the mandate right and so that that doesn't really change um what does change if the intention is to have this institution, in the case of factory, you know, outlive its leaders, outlive its founders, is the natural um, reinterpretation of that mandate, right? Mm-hmm. So as, as far as I know, what I inherited was factory, you know, was a theater company that was um, mandated to uh, nurture and develop Canadian playwrights and produce Canadian stories on the stage. That was very clear to me. And I love that mandate. I uh, fully embrace that mandate that 
I think the only difference in what you're seeing is that what it is when you hire a woman of color um, in in a position and and you see the interpretation of that mandate because my Canada is going to be very different from the past artistic director's version of what Canada is. And so when you tell me, tell Canadian stories, the past 10 seasons, and I have been around now for 10, 10 seasons in that theater company, is what I think are Canadian stories. So in many ways, I am fulfilling the mandate in, in the way that Factory was created and, and Ken, Ken Gass's and... Um, uh, vision of it and um, but it's it's definitely I think what people are seeing is my interpretation of what Canada means so you're seeing a, a different lens on it right so yeah so I'm, I'm I, I think people tend to and I'm not surprised absolutely so you know like the the shift that people remark at factory or the pivot so to speak I think it's it's just in my job there was to allow my audiences to witness and eventually hopefully embrace the multiplicity of of Canada and redefine what Canada means to us and that nationalism isn't a narrow this this kind of narrow like there's no such thing especially in a country like Canada that the the way we are and in the makeup of its citizens like you can't there's no such thing and I'm saying that it's okay I don't think we're meant to just have this one singular vision of what we think Canadian you know the perfect polished Canadian story is so yeah, <laughs> so no, that's that's what, that's, no, that's great. It, that uh, links into another thing that my students and I have been talking about. We're talking about the canon, but we're talking about the pickers or the choosers and how what gets considered canonical is largely mm -hmm. based on who is the picker. And uh, I think it's interesting that that's the way that you've seen the mandate, whatever you want to call it, shift or pivot, mm -hmm. is that the mandate didn't shift, the picker shift, the chooser shifted. And I think Absolutely. that that's, really, that's critical, um, that's a critical di distinction. And I, I'm really glad that, that you articulated that because we, we started the class by looking at different, um, the introductions to different Canadian anthologies of Canadian mm -hmm. theater and plays. And they're, they're the ones that we all know. They're the Wasserman, Bawad, Rubin. And then mm -hmm. I was like, and then two years ago, a Canadian historiography was put out and it was published by someone called Heather Davis Fitch. Now, what do you think mm -hmm. Heather is going to see here that wasn't seen before? And so mm -hmm. we looked at like who the pickers were, why they were who they were in the seventies and why that was, fine for the 70s or wasn't fine for the 70s but mm -hmm. like if you still have the same pickers in 2020 as you did in 1971 something's going which is why I wrote to you and Marjorie Chan mm -hmm. and Mumbai mm -hmm. and uh, I talked to Revy Jane last week mm -hmm. to be like the pickers have changed and what is that doing and how is that well, it's shaking up the game. Yeah. Um, it it, it yeah. definitely is. It is, you know, we're breaking the notion of the word professional. Definitely. We're breaking this whole idea of universal. Um, when you think of Canadian classics, I mean, my very first kind of season as a sole artistic director was the Naked Season, which was the reimagining of Canadian classics. And I just remember, again, people defaulted right away to like works written by white Canadian men. And I'm like, 
really? Because I think Banana Boys is a classic, you know, um, and, and that was a very pivotal watershed moment of a piece for, um, for Canadian audiences, you know, and that includes Asian Canadian audiences. And, but often, again, when we think of reception, we also think of kind of this old white uh, <laughs> audiences sitting politely, uh, you know, in the auditorium. But we really discount kind of the small plays, small, and I put that in quotes because, again, our definition of what, like, the, 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 the Canadian plays that had made an impact in our audiences, like, we tend to really generalize, but really it's not even generalizing. We, we tend to really whitewash and colonialize um, um, those those ideas, right? Because, and, and we, but by doing that, um, we really leave out other kinds of audiences and other pieces that have made tremendous impact in those communities. So never mind, you know, the picker, but also think about that the, the communities that the picker, you know, has on their shoulders. Because that's what I, you know, for me, that is my responsibility. I represent a whole kind of kit, like, you know, a whole bank of of communities that I I often have to think about when I'm programming or when I have been programming at factory then then and only then then like my my shelf uh, uh, opens up you know that saying of like well it's not my cup of tea and often I'll go well even if it's not my cup of tea I need to have that cup in my cabinet because that Peace is important to have because it's made an impact to a certain community that we cannot discount or discredit. Yeah. That's, yeah, I'm, yes. Yeah, I'm trying to, <laughs> this is what, I, these are the conversations that I'm trying to have in, um, in my classes and with my, with my students. We've got um, a project coming up, the final project. I was going to make a list of plays that I've decided are canonical. I'm going to be the picker. And exactly. Them, yeah. So I'm going to get them to uh, think about the, you know, the professorial, think about the themes and topics that we've discussed over the course mm-hmm. and then talk about them with this play. And what I did was I kind of broke it up like 67 to 99 and then 99 to 2020. I'm going to present these plays and be like, I want you to notice what plays, whose plays are getting on the stage now, where are they going? And I included like I deliberately included plays that I thought, of course, these are canonical. Of course, these would be canonical. Banana Boys is on the list, um, mm-hmm. Purple of Asha. And I wondered mm-hmm. if you could talk about how you do the picking. Mm-hmm. Canadian playwrights and how that be, how do you get chosen by the picker? <laughs> well, I, I, I think that um, it's, it's, I think I'd say it's threefold, right? I mean, part of my job is to keep my eyes open, my ears close to the ground, yep. you know. So pre-COVID times, um, I watch a lot of shows, yep. you know. And I'm again and again trying to trying to demystify kind of what kind of shows I see because they're everywhere. Um, if you just look hard enough, and so I try not to really um, underestimate or take for granted, you know, really important festivals like the Fringe. Uh, like summer works, like the next stage, because that's 
plays got to start from somewhere, right? And then you're right. Like the third part of it is creating relationships. Um, at Factory, we're interested in people, not projects, because not every play is a right fit for Factory. And it's my job again to know what fits and doesn't fit. And, and that's the risk that I take, right? Uh, when I'm programming something and sometimes it works, great, it's box office hit, it's a critical acclaim and audiences come. And sometimes I put it on for, you know, very specific reasons and it didn't do too well in the box office or it, it wasn't really received well by critics. Um, but still freaking important to put on, right, on stage to just tell the story. And um, so when I'm, when I'm choosing the plays, I often look to the playwright before anything else. Uh, because the playwright, I might love the playwright and the work, but it might, might not be the playwright's first work that gets on our stages. So it's important to me that I nurture that relationship because it could be the second play that that playwright writes. It could be the third or the fourth. Um, so th that's, that's pretty important. And then I, I guess the third part is it's really kind of respecting and honoring my lens and how I look again at, at, at plays, like what are my personal criterias that I think, man, this is a really important writer and that's a really important play personal criteria and 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 I have to I have to you know full disclosure like even that criteria is so like it's just guiding points because I I often say artistic direction is alchemy it's part it's part science and part magic like sometimes you know so in my criteria it's strong writing it's powerful theatrical vision and then relevance right sometimes I will see a play or I'll meet a playwright and the writing might not be strong, but man, like the vision in that playwright's head could be super powerful and what he or she or they want to talk about or tackle in the play, the issues, the themes are really super relevant, then we can help with the writing. Like that's what new play development is about, right? But if you're coming to me and it's about fluffy clouds and flowers and even though how well written it is and you know how how sassy or how sophisticated the script may be I'm I probably most likely will not even bother you know uh, if it's not relevant if I don't find any if I can't answer the question why why are we seeing this right now right so uh, you know, but again, that criteria are just like I use that as guiding points because just there are some plays that I've chosen that it's just like for no rhyme or reason, I just have a gut instinct about it um, that it's super important um, or like, there's just something about the piece like you can't, you know, so uh, there's no hard and fast rules. There's no formula. There's no secret algorithm to kind of choosing the plays. A lot of it really is, is your gut instinct. And then again, understanding why you're putting this on, who you're putting this on for and not, and not underestimating your audiences, having faith, that new audiences will come, especially if it's a play with a voice that's never been heard before, that, um, that they will come if you build it, that they will come. And sometimes they still don't, but you got to keep trying. It doesn't mean you give up on it. You know, so the barometer of box office success or critic success, it can't be the only things 
that you use to make theater or to produce theater, or again, you're going to end up with theater companies that produce the same shit over and over again, the same color, the same perspective, fear of, of audiences not coming to see it, fear of critics slamming you and tearing you apart, the fear of, you know, and, and, and yeah, so for, for me, those are the things that I, I think of when I'm, I'm choosing um, work. Those are the, 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 the kinds of playwrights that I'm attracted to and then align myself with are, are the same playwrights that value the same things that I value. They just express it in a like amazing way <laughs> than I can, so. Yeah. I guess one of the other things I wanted to ask you, and I mean, you, this is not like on the record in memoriam from all time, but um, I am having, I'm doing several interviews with like directors and artistic directors and different academics. And because I talk about picking in the canon and Canadian plays, mm-hmm. I am asking people, if you could pick five plays to go in the canon, what would they be? See, and I guess for me, I, I, it's hard to, to zero in on plays, but if, if I were to go, these five playwrights should be in the canon, like whatever works, because I think whatever David Yee writes should be in, in the Canadian canon automatically, whatever, like from Lady in the Red Dress to Carried Away on the Crest of the Wave, that's like David Yee should be in the canon. Anushri Roy should be in the canon. Very freaking important voice but one of, you know, the, the like solo artists, but like even her not as a performer, as a writer, just, you know, that, that South Asian Canadian voice, that immigrant voice, um, super important to have. Um, I would say Lisa Codrington is another important um, playwright to have in the canon. I think uh, Joseph Joe Mopierre super important to have in canon like you know any of his plays from born ready to shakespeare's nigga should be in the classical canon one two three four one more come on i'm like looking at my bookshelf (laughs) i think i think matt mckenzie um indigenous playwright at this point should be in the canon because he's got a good collection going alongside with all i think all the indigenous playwrights already should be in the canon automatically they should just get a pass <laughs> like i don't care and and the fact that we don't know a lot of the works of like Yvette Nolan for example Jenny Lazon Keith Barker like they should just be they should automatically just have a place you know for me like it's a given right um but yeah so those are those would be kind of my five playwrights whatever they they put out like Shakespeare you're going to have works that you like and you're gonna have like Shakespeare also wrote shitty crappy plays. Oh, like, I don't filler. Like, <laughs> I, I know. Like, do you know what I mean? <laughs> the freshness of you know all of a sudden when it comes to BIPOC playwrights that their body of work should be super freaking perfect is I don't know again what standard of measurement did that come from? Whereas we're so forgiving of you look at past uh, playwrights like in the world that are revered. And it's like, when you look at their body of work, it's just, it's so healthy and holistic. And it's like, some are fucking great and some are, you know, not so awesome. But if you take it as a whole, it's like, they're freaking important. Their voice, whether you love some of the plays or hate some of them is, is super important. And so for me, like those five playwrights that I've named, I mean, have a really fantastic, prolific 
playwriting career. And yeah, not all of them have been box office hits. I mean, in fact, some of them, like most of them are not because, you know, plays written by BIPOC artists. I will tell you this from an artistic director's point of view. We're still, we're still climbing up there. Um, oh, Marjorie Chan should also be in the canon. Phenomenal writer. Yeah, should she be really in the is. Canon. Always has been. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's like, but but why aren't we doing more Marjorie Chan work? Like, why is she not considered versus George F. Walker, for example, right? Like, that that is automatic, like, ooh, Canadian classic, a revered playwright, and like whatever you whatever play you choose whatever play you choose from his body of work, you know, beyond Mozambique to uh, the Suburban Motel series, like it's it's okay because it's George F. Walker. We should be saying the same things about all the other playwrights that I've mentioned. Yeah, you know, I, they have enough body of work. Yeah, it should be like studied that. like... Yeah. Yeah. I feel that way about Morris Panitch. I think that his plays are really, really good. But then sometimes you're like, how about that one? I don't know if like, that's the best one. And I don't, I don't mind. And see, and I think what we're trying to fight for in terms of equality and, and diversity and inclusion and all of that lovely, you know, social justice rhetoric is like, I don't mind that we, we revere Morris Panish. Like he earned it. Like he's, he's a playwright. There's no doubt about it. Where it, where I get really frustrated and pissed off again is that we do not have the same measurement of success for BIPOC creators we just don't there is a double standard somehow and again the notion that we have to prove ourselves 10 times better you know and that all of our work should be freaking perfect and should have like a stellar track record is so unrealistic and i i just uh, hannah moscovich and anushri roy are the same to me there shouldn't be any you know and yet if we look at track records if we look at the number of times plays um, each each women playwright you know their their plays produced. There's a discrepancy, and I and that's where what I am trying to get to the bottom of. It's like why why it it both are amazing playwrights. Both should be produced as many times over as possible. There are standards are slow changing, and our definition of Canadian theater, our definition of excellent Canadian theater, is still a work in progress and um, we're still having a hard time to really embrace um, a more prismatic definition of that right I'm, I'm very hopeful that once we go into recovery mode once we reboot our Canadian theater industry hopefully soon uh, in the future that that we'll really see the reflections that are happening now turn into action later yeah yeah well cool. this really useful thank you glad uh, to help yeah yeah. Same to you. Thank you so much. It was great okay. to chat. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Dr. Canadiana has a new sponsor this week. As the weather starts to turn, it's time to think about staying cozy. So start thinking about Toucan Socks. That's T-O-O-K-N-S-O-X. For 20 bucks a month, Toucan Socks will send you a toque and a matching pair of snuggly socks. Toucan Socks. Be fashionably cold. Promo code NINA. Next week on Dr. Canadiana, we will explore some of the topics Aquino brought up in this conversation. For example, the way Canadian plays make it to the stage and the value of new play development and dramaturgy. These will be particularly relevant since our case study will be John Herbert's Fortune in Men's Eyes, 
a play that although now considered canonical, did not make its debut in Canada. Perhaps being written in the 60s meant it came slightly too early to benefit from the playwright-first theatre company models that would come the following decade. Next week's podcast will also have a guest. Dr. Cameron Crookston will join me to closely read the play and have a discussion on issues of historical language, gender and sexuality, early Canadian queerness, and how all of these things might fit or not fit into Canadian history and Canadian theatre history. Until next time, eh?